What is happening, Brew Theology listeners? This is Ryan Miller. Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. I'm with my introductory co-host. What's your name, girl? Caroline. Caroline. Caroline, how was your fundraiser last Sunday? Good. What did you end up doing? That's right. She got people to take care of the island, and she was a phenomenal salesperson. I was very proud of her. And if you want to support Dominica and help them rebuild in any way, please email me, ryan at brewtheology.org, and I'd love to point you in different directions of how you could give to that amazing, beautiful island that's in desperate need right now. So that aside, uh, although that's incredibly important, I want to shift your attention to Prophecy Part 2. Doom, Gloom, and Tongues of Fire by my buddy Dan Rosado. Also, Dan has been one of the first guys, uh, one of the first Denver Brew theologians, and he's uh, a regular moderator, writes content, and is on the podcast, as you've heard, and he also edits. So thank you, Dan, for all of your hard work. We love you. I know right now you really don't want the love, but hey, I'm the one talking right now. And so there you have it. Love you, Dan. Also, Janelle, Janelle at brewtheology.org. If, uh, you know, Janelle's the kind of person, by the way, she, she writes on the side, and she has phenomenal articles, so check that out. She's on uh, Pathios. That's right. See, that's Anna, and she's saying straight up, you should go go look at Janelle's work. She writes some good stuff. So uh, Janelle at RuthTheology.org, contact her. Uh, phenomenal thinker, great organizer, amazing at formatting, so... If you want someone to help format the curriculum, Janelle's the person to do that. If you want to start a chapter, be a part of the Brew Theology Network like our friends across the nation, please just give us an email and we'd love to get that process going for you. Okay, friends, share this online. Go to iTunes, rate it. You know our handles, Twitter, Brew underscore Theology, along with Facebook and Instagram at Brew Theology, and we will talk to you soon. Peace. That's where stories, I think, are really powerful because in those in those instances, the only thing that has worked up until now is is stories. Mm-hmm. Like to stop defining white privilege and defining race, and and I'd say, you know what, my best friend um, couldn't drive from Memphis to Nashville without a, a guide from his dad on which exits were safe to stop at and which weren't. Um, that happened. That was real, you know? Yep. And um, he said, you know, don't stop at these, these exits aren't safe for you. And it just this, this very protective thing. And that was how he grew up. And that was, um, that was normal. And so when you tell somebody that story and it's not just this random person out in the world, but it's, it's your best friend or someone that you're closely aligned with, it's really hard to argue with. I mean, mm-hmm. they still can, but sometimes, and I think that's why like, the, the prophets that came to David, the king in the Bible, <laughs> used stories. You know, he used a story of like, there was, oh my gosh, I totally forgot that parable. <laughs> but he used a story describing injustice. And King David said, oh my gosh, that's horrible. That man should be, you know, should be punished. And then um, the prophet said, that man is you, you know. And so, but it was only the story that allowed him to wake up. And so, until we can define our terms, I think stories is about all we have sometimes. Don't take too many lambs. So that's na- yeah. Nathan, was Nathan? Nathan, yeah. Nathan, Nathan took too. Oh, don't I mean, take too many lambs, David. Yeah, it's so, sex with 
someone so, else's lamb. So, and then, so, so here's here's what I'm, I'm curious about. We're with the such lambs. good Christians, you guys. <laughs> lamb, lamb, lamb. Okay. lamb was baby. Lamb of God. Now, David, getting biblical, had Nathan. That's a unique story because a lot of the kings in the Bible said, "No, you're a prophet. Get out of here." I want to hear the the prophets that are going to tickle my ears and make me hear what I I want to hear because you know I want to be successful and powerful and keep the status quo. Whereas the prophets that that we have that are actually in the canon and these minor and major prophets, those guys were ostracized. So, do you think that kings need prophets and prophets need kings and how does that work in the church? How does that work in the business world and politics? What do y'all think? Why you do this? Ask an easier question, please. <laughs> Can we just ignore that question? And <laughs> no. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's a fact of nature, like that they're always going to exist, yin and yang. Um, like you could even take the position that David was not a good guy and Nathan was. Oh, my goodness. Right. How dare you? <laughs> well, Nathan is similar to the other prophets, like coming in and blasting the king and has some route in. Like, I think most of the other prophets at least had a way to get in at from time to time. I think the part of the problem right now is, like, I mean, it has to do with defining, like, what is a prophet and when are they actually doing prophetic work because... What we're seeing right now is we're seeing quote-unquote prophets sidle up to our political leaders, but they're all about tickling ears. They're not about speaking truth about what's going on. And um, when people do try to reach out and speak truth, they're swatted away. And so, like, there has to be space in the system. If I remember right, I might be wrong, but I think David in some ways welcomed Nathan and said, okay, like, I'll hear your criticism, and maybe he didn't always listen to it or give into it, but he wanted to hear it. And right now, what we're what we're hearing is that there are daily folders that go on to the uh, resolute desk that tell you how awesome you are, and that's not the same thing as a prophet that's telling you how you're destroying the world and that you need to respond to that. Well, I guess my point is like there will never be a leader who is going to invite a prophet in. And even if it may seem that way with David, I doubt it, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, if we're, we're, if we're hoping for a leader who is wise enough to have an antagonistic voice as an aide, as more than just a token, like, it's not, it's just not going to happen. No human being would ever willingly do that. So it has to be an invasion or like an act of aggression or I, I don't know like that makes sense I mean that guy's gonna get fired especially if you think about in the church world that's the world that I've come from we have a lot of what we call yes men and they're mostly men who tell it's, it's funny because it's always like the women leaders who are like you should tell you should tell the lead guy that and they're like no no I can't because then the, men, the you know it's always the men who are like close up to the head guy and they're all telling him what he needs to hear and what he's you know but women prophets where are they at most of them have been silenced or thrown out of the church. I mean, if that's what you want to know. Like, their their voices are taken. It's part of systemic discrimination and gender bias. And the moment that they step up and try to be part of the discussion, they are silenced. Um, and that's why a lot of women have had to go into independent ministry. Um, and they're, they're out of the church. I mean, the Pentecostal church at least does better at keeping them. Seems to be better. But... Yeah, that's the reality. And like my my feeling is that's 
that's the way it is. Like it's, it's natural in a very bad way. Like, and so my question coming out of all this is tactical, I guess, like what is, what's going to be effective because I, I feel like you can get into the discussion of profits like in a fatalistic way where you're trying to be the voice of righteousness, but you're, you know, they're always going to be suppressed by empire. Um, so number one, you can then play the victim, you know, and, and like sort of delight in that always losing, which is how I feel a little bit about like left-leaning people like myself right now, just feeling overwhelmed by Trump and everything else you sort of sink into and feel comfortable in that fatalism. Like, at least I'm going to have my chin held high while this world goes to hell. Um, so I guess my question is, like, is is the prophetic position effective? And if it isn't, should we try something else? Like, it's if it's a certain way of approaching a problem that, I don't know, it's poetic, it's black and white, like, it's speaks truth to power. I probably think it does work, but if it doesn't, like, should we try something else? Yeah, I'm all for that. I feel like if the words that we're using are just sort of screaming at people, talking over them, under them, and kind of sending ways, like, it'd be good to have some prophetic gifts with some creative gifts together. So how can we make this message that's going to be heard? It's still going to be, still going to sting. It's going to thump you in the forehead, make you think a little bit, but it's going to be gracious and... Otherwise, yeah. I mean, right now it seems that nothing is nothing's working in our country right now, from what I can tell. What do y'all think? I, I I'm just just I, at least I know social media seems to be just oh, it's like I'm banging my head against the wall. Like I I don't use it the same way that I used to. I've backed off quite a bit because all I see now I I read a lot of comments and people are just yelling at each other and no one's listening. I mean, at least I think in the pub we tend to like create an atmosphere of what do you think and let me hear yeah. more and I'm gonna extend some courtesy. So I, I struggle with with using the words of success and effective because that's the language of empire. <laughs> and I, I know. I'll push back, but keep going. Yeah, yeah. And what we can say is that it makes a difference. And that's probably what you were trying to get at. Um, when I think of, of 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 the women that started the black lives matter movement i see their work as worthwhile because now everybody knows what that is you know everybody at least in, in the states everyone i've ran into when you talk about mass incarceration they know what you're talking about whereas five years ago they're like mass what what is what are you talking about and it's not just black i mean there's there's a whole group and you know, everyone's standing on the shoulders of giants, if you will. But in that sense, I, I see it as this kind of slow progress. And I want to also make it very clear that you don't want to be a prophet because you're going to get killed. Yeah. Um, you either get killed or you get shunned into oblivion. Yeah. And you're just irrelevant and you're miserable. Yep. It's and and that's why I straight away from using the word like prophet like you are a prophet but the idea or the concept of of the prophetic kind of a little more abstracted because i don't think anyone wants to be a prophet so when you you ask like how do we go about doing this um as i've been 
leaning more into learning about activism, a lot of what we see going on, and it is the model that's presented by the Black Lives Matter leaders, is much more um, distributed and local engagement that then breeds other local groups that have distributed leadership. So instead of it being a hierarchy, like in a business or a church, um, often what it is is small groups that work together to empower the people around them, to work with the communities around them and to strengthen them, and then to empower them to go out and lead as well. And so I think one of the frustrations that we've seen in the criticisms of Black Lives Matter is like, well, who are the leaders? Like, who do you go to? Blah, blah, blah. Well, that's actually from what I've been reading, and I, I am not an expert in this at, by any means, but what I'm reading is that that's exactly the point is that we want everyone to lead. We want people to work on this in their context and then lead out of their context. So what it looks like in Seattle or in uh, Compton or in Detroit or in Denver is going to look different depending on the community and what's going on, but that we all lead out of our community and do that. Um, and if you want to read more about this, there's um, an activist that, that I know who uh, does a lot of this work. Uh, her website is irobyn.com iRobin, and she is a queer activist that works all across the country um, helping people learn how to do this work. And um, so there are lots of tools out there and lots of ways to learn how to do this kind of work and to learn about these issues like mass incarceration um, and Black Lives Matter and unconscious bias. Like if you're just getting started, then those are some of the topics just start reading about and then start working with people in your area to address those issues. So we've, we've mostly been talking about the prophetic in the public space as a secular endeavor, if you will. And something that Brueggemann talks about is the church as needing to be a meeting space where um, it's, it's, it's where people come so that voice can be uttered. Um, because again, outside of that space, it's mostly silenced. And it's a place where um, things can be said that are usually usually can't be said, and it's one that is imaginative enough that you know the imagination part is seeing the world different than it is. Remember, empire or totalism or whatever says this is how things are always going to be, or this is as good as it can get. But you know, I, I on the drive over here, I was trying to think in, in what ways things could be way better. But Brueggemann talks about the church being a place where that's allowed. And I don't think it is um, for the most part. And I think it's because of that co-opting of, of, of nationalism and consumerism that's infiltrated the church, at least the Protestant church, to such a degree that like people don't know the difference. And that's why we're arguing about flags and, you know, American civil religion of doing the right thing and doing the right rituals. Like people don't know the difference between Christianity and that. Mm-hmm. That's true. I, I, I found that it's very interesting how you want to know, like, what is the prophetic voice? And you had said the prophetic voice gets killed or shunned or fired. And, and yet when you look at the roots of our faith, if you want to call yourself a Christian, which I, I, I mean... 
I'm a Christian. Uh, I think I look around the group here. Uh, we're not the we're not the norm. Definitely don't fit the the mold of today. But it's nationalistic Christianity. It's American Christianity, which is such the oxymoron. And if we were to look at the first century church, if you were to say the you know the Roman Christians, the Caesar driven Christians, the imperial, I'm like it, they would have they would have they wouldn't even understand that concept. Uh, but those are words that are like today, people will tune you out and uh, crucify you, so to speak, metaphorically speaking. And like, um, not to keep going back to Trump, but like my experience going through the election was way murkier than that. Like, I didn't, I don't know if I knew any like hardcore nationalist Christians who loved Trump the minute he, you know, declared his candidacy. It was a slow drift, like, to this guy's a clown, to he's an asshole, to, like, but he's better than the other option. And then, like, and so I never heard the black and white. I got a lot more of gray. And, like, the churches I was hearing from were, I think, honestly, legitimately afraid to do the bad prophecy thing and tell people to vote one way or another. There's a lot of sensible pastors, I think, who think that's a bad idea overall. So they just don't say anything. And so I mostly I heard crickets like in churches running up to the election, like they're both people, they're both okay. Like, so what do you do with that? Like, it's it seems a lot that the slide towards it was a lot like more lukewarm. It felt to me. Um, do we just, we should have just had a prophet. Like we should, I mean, we needed more prophetic voices. That's probably the answer. I think that would have helped, but I also think we have to recognize the amount of interference that was going on in this election. And we now have proof that that was happening, not only um, in big places, but also with targeted ads by Russia to specific groups of conservative Americans and, um, I mean, kind of what Ryan said earlier, like the prophetic voice gets squished out. And if you're made to fear for your life at every turn of what's going to happen if we elect someone who doesn't use email correctly, um, like that fear will override any courage they have to do the right thing or to do the better thing. Um, and I just, I think there were a lot of voices that were shouting and I think there were a lot of voices trying to be heard but again it comes back to our level of discussion like when uh, when you say well but what about the emails or what about the supreme court like when those dog whistles become the norm i can't have a conversation with you um and even as a prophet i can only point at that and tell you it's wrong but if you can't hear me i don't know but it, it scares me because then what do we do to get out of this well, and I think that goes back to what Dan was saying about Brueggemann, like, that's the totality, yeah. when th that's what Trump did so well, is came in and, like, swept over the language and took it all for himself, like, so you can't, you can't use the language anymore, he's right. got it, S so that's where the creativity comes in of, like, you've got to speak a different language, I don't know what that is, um, I think of, like, Pussy Riot, the group in Russia, they, anyways, um, punk group, like, they weren't on Facebook commenting, you know, like with their political views. Like it's just a totally different language that is not owned. 
I was just going to say that they went to prison and that's just right. what you were saying, Dan, is like they were literally imprisoned. They're a punk band that was put in. And so with their name and what they were trying to say and what's happening right now, that's that's what happens to prophets, you know? That's why in the in the notes, um, I, I had a little paragraph about um, the importance of it being poetic, right? It's because it in prose, it can't be done, I don't think. Um, even someone who, like Martin Luther King Jr., who we write his, like, a letter from Birmingham jail or whatever, he still uses all this biblical imagery. In a way, he embodied kind of an artful way of 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 protest so i i think it i think you're right in saying that a different language quote unquote is needed um and maybe maybe language is not part of i don't know like i don't know what that looks like that's where you have to be imaginative and and think outside the box again and and um i think it's harder this might be a little rabbit trail but let's not let it be a rabbit trail i think it's it's interesting that in the American context, there's such a, and this is coming from somebody who's an engineer for, that's what I do for money. Um, there's such a push for STEM careers, right? And it's technology and, you know, because this is where all the money's at, right? Meanwhile, schools are struggling to get their arts programs like maintained. And I think and I, Brueggemann says this, so I'll, uh, maybe I'll defer to Brueggemann since he's, uh, older than I am. Um, he, he thinks this, that, that America knows the danger of having people with the skills, with the tools that they need to be creative and artful. Um, I think we saw it in the sixties and seventies with all the protest songs and all these crazy young people that, we're protesting the Vietnam War and all that upheaval. That might be a little tinfoil hat-ish, but I see it. And it's it's more, at least within that STEM world, the humanities and everything that's kind of more soft skills or whatever is kind of demeaned. And I see how that's gaining prominence in that, you know, if, if you go to school for anything but STEM, it's like, you're wasting your time because you can't make money with that or whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's the intersection also of capitalism, that if it doesn't make money, it's not worth anything. Um, but I, I think that speaks into, like, how do we counteract this? I think the themes that I've, I've seen activated are fear, scarcity, and um, the loss of tradition um, that will we'll no longer be the majority and we're not going to have the things we need. And there's just this tremendous amount of fear that is driving so much of this. And so then what does it mean for our, our language, but then also our song, our imagination, our art to be about um, care and compassion and love and, and, and just, making the world better um you know i i went on a trip this week and we needed to rent a car with no warning and um it was it was for a like kind of an emergency situation and the lady behind the desk had absolutely no ability at all in her job to have compassion on us in any way in any form she could not make any exception she could not 
give us a free second driver. She could not, there was nothing she could do. Her company had taken away her, her ability to have compassion. And that really, even in the midst of that, like struck me as a very bad thing. What are we doing to people when we put them in positions where they're not allowed to have compassion? Of course, they're going to be fearful and afraid and feel like they have no control and that the world is changing without them because their job tells them that you must do this and this and this and that's it. Um, well, Janelle, the problem is that you don't have the new iPhone X. I know. I know. But seriously, that's how it works, right? Right. You have you have this fear, this anxiety that's created by the whole thing. And then it's like, but here's a product. And there's never a line. Nobody said, hey, you have too many cars or X or whatever. Mm. It's just buy more, you know, buy this. Or better. Buy this other beer. Buy this other toothpaste. Like, it's getting ridiculous where everything is just supposed to fix all your problems. One thing I want to point out, and I just learned this today because I was listening to a talk by Walter Brueggemann on his book, Prophetic Imagination, or The Prophetic Imagination. Um, He actually mentions that at the same time that you had these, you know, canonical prophets, you also had prophets that were pro-temple. You know, you had some that were anti and some that were pro. And that's kind of, you could make an analogy to those that were more conservative. And I wouldn't say they were so much fear-driven, but what what triggered that memory was that you said uh, tradition. You had talked about tradition. And I kind of want to make space because there is that uh, Judaism is a lot better at handling a plurality of voices and being intention than I think Christianity mm-hmm. does. And there very well might be a set of prophetic voices that want to keep tradition, right? And then there might be those that are kind of on the edge and pushing. And that's something that I didn't mention in my notes, um, mostly because I was not aware of it or I, you know, I wasn't thinking about that. Or maybe I just wanted to just focus on this one aspect. But I think a health, healthy traditionalism, I don't want even want to put an ism at the end of it, but I think there has to be a little bit of that balance, that conversation at least, that tension. But what we're seeing is that that traditional aspect has been co-opted by the dominant secular ideology or whatever you want to call it empire, American empire. And, um, they're using that, that kind of traditionalist framework to keep people from doing anything, including people that know this is wrong, but then it's what you talked about fatalism, right? We're just, are we really changing anything? Are we just wasting our time? All right. So currently right now, what are some of the imaginative ways in which as uh, Dan had mentioned about 10 minutes ago, and you hopefully started to think about ways in which we can speak or listen to others speak or be open to what it may be for a prophetic imagination to exist in our culture, regardless if people can hear it or not now. Maybe they hear it five years from now. This isn't creative in an artistic sense, but I think a voice that I think a lot of us have been listening to and have found some wisdom in is Richard Rohr. And um, he talks a lot about non-dualism. <laughs> and so I, I've, that's really helped me a lot because I think a lot, just in the most simplistic terms, you know, either I write something 
full of outrage on my Facebook status or I stay quiet and I'm a coward, you know, either I'm bold and I write about it and I say, you know, if you aren't doing these three things or if you aren't saying this on your Facebook, then you're a coward or I'm quiet and I'm, I'm a coward, you know, and I feel like those are like either or there's so many either or and Western society is so either or like everything is, is such extremes. And so when he talks about non-dualism, that everything belongs and that, um, we have these, this like violent outrage in our, in our hearts because we have given in to the idea, the illusion of separation. He talks about, we've forgotten that we're brothers and sisters and we've forgotten that we're connected to each other. And that's not, creative in an artistic sense, but I think it gives way to a lot of um, maybe artistic expression out of those ideas. And um, he talks also a lot about the need to be centered and grounded and rooted. And things are so, I mean, no matter what side you're on, and even people who are fighting fighting for justice, like we have to be grounded. We have to, we have to get our hearts and our spirits somewhere that's sustainable. Otherwise, we're going to burn out and we're not going to be any good to anybody. So finding a way to stay balanced and rooted and centered and um, to, to remember that everybody we're talking to is human, to not lose the humanity in one another. And I think that's where a lot of like the poetry and the songs and the, and the writings that are really reaching me right now are there. And it's, it's helped me chill out just a little bit and remember you know, that these people who disagree with me so much are my brothers and sisters. And, and that a lot of them that I've known forever are, have amazing hearts are some of the most compassionate giving people, but they're in a different echo chamber than I am. So the facts that they have, the quote facts that they have are really different from me, you know, and it, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have hard conversations, but looking at things in a non-dualistic way helps me approach those with, with more imagination and more compassion, I'd say. Yeah, I think that's helpful. And to go back to even Michelle Warren, who when we had her on episode 52, 53, and she says, and I quote, woe to the person who works on an issue but does not love people. And that was one of the last things that she said that I, ho- I hope will stick with everybody who did listen. And I think what you're saying is true because we get binary on all of our issues and then our issues become our idol. And then we've forgotten about the people, um, even if it started with the people. But you, you've always... I think ultimately, like on both sides of an issue, there are beating hearts. Um, these good, you know, good, kind, loving people. It's like it's like the layers, right? You take it's like the onion. You gotta peel it back a bit, and like yeah, there, there's like Darth Vader, right? There's good and there's good in you, Darth, somewhere in there. But we've somehow like, no, you're you're a Trump supporter. You you knelt or you stood or whatever side you're on, the kneeling or the standing. Yeah, that's the issue. What about the person who is kneeling or who is standing? And I feel like even on this issue, because it's so hot right now, the players on those teams, they don't, that's not going to divide their team. Um, the guys that are kneeling and standing, they actually care about those those teammates. And I, and I love that. Um, I feel like we have forgotten about that. Like, I should respect both. And I should figure out why they're kneeling and why they're standing. Because I love the person. So thank you. No, that was good. I've really been um, inspired by a lot of the artwork that has come out of the last probably year. Um, Some of the posters and symbols that are being used. Um, And I don't consider myself like a a 2D artist in that way. I can't really draw or anything like that. But the idea has crossed my mind of just trying to take some of those symbols and, 
and use them creatively as a way to participate in that. Um, and and maybe those images would, would become something for someone. I don't know. But I just I feel like that's one of the ways that we can um, speak back without using words um, is is building symbols that are because we have a lot of really negative symbols right now uh, that have come out of Charlottesville and, you know, Nazi symbols and those kinds of things. So counteracting that with good symbols and powerful symbols uh, makes a difference and gives, I don't know, for me, I feel like it gives me something to hold on to. What about comedy? Does that backfire or does it work? Because at least in comedy, you can laugh even if you think <laughs> what the guy said. So, like, oh, he's, you know, because whether you're John Oliver, on, like, he, he can be, yeah, John Oliver can be, can probably, I, I love John Oliver, but I'm sure if my, my people, my family would not enjoy what well, he has Stephen to say. Well, Stephen Colbert and SNL, like, they've really yeah. pushed the line, but they also are making some very clear statements that are very important, and they're able to say the things that I think some of us want to be able to say that that would lead into not so great outcomes in everyday life. Um, but, but does comedy end up just funneling into like liberals or conservatives? Probably. And at the end of the day, it's about money because Stephen Colbert at that award show had Sean Spicer come out and they did a whole bit together. So, so dumb. That's to me, that's now we need to think outside and that's, that's, Hamilton. The, that's totalism, right? Yeah. Everything, even the arts themselves are just encapsulated in like, this is the only thing that's possible for me. I think a way forward and I don't know, I'm just thinking out loud. Um, we have as Christians, we have to be willing to work with people that are different than us. And, you know, typically we're thinking about conservatives and I don't care about them. I'm talking about people of different faiths and different backgrounds who are more aligned with the patterns of of Jesus and and this tradition that Jesus comes out of the Jewish tradition whether they're muslim atheist wiccan i don't really give a shit it's that important that we we work with people that are different because that's also part of the, the power of empires to to cast that us versus them and and keep these groups apart and that was actually some of the power behind Martin Luther King Jr. You see Abraham Joshua Heschel out there, you know, um, to a certain extent, even Malcolm X. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's that's something that's missing, and I don't know what that what what's going to kind of be the catalyst for us to work together. And in some ways, it's already happening. Um, and I guess time will tell. I think Ryan has done a great job of doing that here in Brew Theology. You're bringing us together with people from different traditions. And that that starts that conversation. And um, I was having a conversation with someone in a different part of the country who's uh, um, a more becoming more progressive in their Christian view, but feeling very, very lonely. And I said, well, you know, is there a Buddhist temple around? Or do you have a synagogue or or somebody go talk to their leader and become friends with them. And they're like, why? And I said, because that's where you're going to find solidarity. You're going to find solidarity in people that are doing this work in other traditions. And they're going to be able to give you support and encouragement in a way that 
when you're living in a conservative part of the country where you're not able to find that in other Christians, you can find that in other traditions. Um, and that comes directly out of our experience here and what you're saying, Dan, that if we work together and cross those lines and keep those lines open for communication, we can all be working towards the same outcome. Yeah, and even a lot of our speakers that you've all heard on this podcast have come from recommendations and from Amanda Henderson, who's the executive director of the Interfaith Alliance of Colorado. And there's an Interfaith Alliance in most metro cities across the nation. And so I, I would, if you're you know, in some other state right now, go check out the Interfaith Alliance of your state. And all I did was I just emailed Amanda in, in our state and she sat down, we had coffee, next thing you know, and she's speaking on the podcast and giving, hey, you should have Rabbi Stephen talk. You should have Ann Dunlap talk. You should, we're going to have a, a Sikh speaker coming up and Diana Thompson, a Buddhist minister. Like oh, these, these are all from her. So yeah, thanks Interfaith Alliance. Yeah. So what does it mean for us to be the prophetic voice in our families? Like, that's really, really hard. Like, because I think many of us right here are experiencing that. And so... Post memes on your dad's wall. Can I tell you what it meant for me? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So um, two years ago, I'm a photographer for a living. And two years ago, I was getting to the end of shooting weddings. I wasn't going to shoot them anymore. Um, but I had one more guy who contacted me about shooting his wedding. And the more I got to know him, the more I really liked him. And I thought, you know, this would be a cool wedding. And it turned out to be a gay wedding. And um, at that time, I was still kind of emerging out of evangelicalism. And, and I wasn't quite sure what I thought about all of that. But I knew, to me, it seemed like Jesus served people. I want to serve people. And that was about as simple as it was at the time. And so I took the wedding, and um, as soon as it became public knowledge in my in my friend group um, in the South, <laughs> I got pretty much shunned by my friend group, and um, I got letters and like long Facebook messages and posts telling me, you know, that they were worried about my soul and that I was condoning the sin, and it was um, I lost my community because of it, and that's a big reason I moved to Denver actually, and after that happened. Um, because I'd finally seen, like, experienced the brunt of that kind of, um, negativity is not strong enough of a word, <laughs> that kind of uh, just hatred. I went to the Pride Parade that year, and it was the day after the Supreme Court decision to legalize gay marriage. And I had seen so much hate from people who were usually really loving, lovely people, completely dehumanizing Um the LGBTQ community completely just it just broke my heart and so that day I went to that the pride parade in Nashville which was not something that churches or Christians did or do and um, I just held a sign because I felt like I needed to do this for myself that just said I'm a Christian that hasn't shown you love please forgive me and um, I didn't even bring my camera that day but news of that kind of spread and my dad found out about it and um, he and I have several thousand Facebook friends just because I'd been in music and had led worship at all these different churches and had done photography. So a lot of my colleagues were and my Facebook friends and he posted a long open letter to me on my Facebook page that was seen by thousands of people and including professional people. And it went on and on about um, how gay people are pedophiles and 
it, it was so disgusting and disturbing that I couldn't read all of it. And I have not talked to my father since then because it was so abusive and it was so, um, it was so, it was so awful. And it was, I mean, it was kind of par for the course, the way that he responded to things and his fundamentalist tendencies. Um, and, and a lot of it had to do with control. It was more than just that. But when I decided to stand up and not, I grew up being an appeaser and just, you know, always a people pleaser and like not wanting to rock the boat. And like, you know, if I'd start to speak up, but people around me didn't really like it, I'd be like, oh, that's not what I meant, you know, and minimize what I was saying. And this was one of the first times that I'd said something outside of the acceptable parameters of my community. And um, it, it shut down my life. I ended up in counseling for a long time. And that's a big reason why I'm in Denver right now. So, <laughs> you know, that's the, those kinds of actions have major consequences. And I've I've met some people that have similar stories, but um, it's a big it's a big deal. I want to say I'm sorry, and thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And know that you're not alone, and that many of us that are sitting here and other people that come to Brew Theology are standing with you in the midst of that. And I felt that. I mean, I've, I I feel like that story has less negative power over me than it used to because I've found such solidarity here. And that that com that camaraderie makes me believe in, in what's happening at Brew Theology and in this message of, of being like Jesus and being in serving and looking at like, seeing marginalized people and being in solidarity um it's 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 really changed my life and i'm really glad i'm here so yeah. i'm in a really good place well, we're glad you're here too um i do want to say to our listeners out there if you're in a place um that is not metro denver or a progressive city i want you to know that you're not alone um we are right here uh we're sitting on this side of the mic and we're with you and um, if we can be of support to you in some way, would you reach out to us? But just I want you to take it to heart that you're not alone. Uh, there are a lot of people going through faith transitions that are moving out of con conservative, um, kind of boxed up legalistic faith and are learning that there's more to it than that. And there's more to the way we live our lives than that. And that's okay. And it's hard work and it's good work. And you're not alone. So please don't feel like no one else understands because we do and so please let us know if we can walk with you on that journey cheers everyone cheers <laughs>